Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week we began our study of essentials of the faith. My intent is to delve into seven statements of faith as listed within our constitution and doctrinal statement, to examine them and to consider them and to find the biblical standing from which we receive them. These are non-negotiables or essentials of the Christian faith. For example, the first one given in our statement of faith is this. We believe in the Holy Scriptures as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, and the only supreme authority in all manners of faith and conduct. That is an essential of the faith. Another one is this, a little bit further on in this list. We believe in the salvation of lost and sinful people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This regeneration is by faith, apart from works, and is accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take and we're going to look at those seven statements that we would consider to be essentials of the faith. Those things that are non-negotiable. Those things of greatest importance. They are paramount to our faith. In those things, we must be united. Now, I'm not going to quite get to the point where we're actually looking at one of those essentials yet today. We need to be united, though, in what are essentials based on the Word of God. To deny any one of those essentials, and as we will see as we look through those essentials, is to deny the truth of the gospel and so declare that you are not part of the body of Christ, the church universal, and that you are still in your sin. For example, you cannot deny the authority of the word of God and be a genuine child of God by grace through faith. For to attempt to do so is to deny the grounds of God's revelation of himself and his means of salvation. It is non-negotiable. It is essential. You cannot deny his revelation and say you are trusting in him. That would be saying, I am saved, but I don't believe what God said. You can't be trusting God for salvation and calling him a liar at the same time. You can't claim to be genuinely born again if you deny the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is essential. You aren't a Christian if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Only God can save. A human can't die in your place and reconcile you to God. You aren't a Christian if you believe that your works contribute to God saving you. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Those are some of the truths that are indisputable for the genuine child of God. On these truths, these essentials, we are united. As we saw last week, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to maintain that unity. The flip side of that statement dictates that we are inherently divided from those who are outside of Jesus Christ. That is, we are not united in fellowship or in the work of the kingdom with those who are not in the kingdom of God. This family, which is all true believers by grace through faith, are united. We must be preaching the gospel and demonstrating the love of God to those outside of the faith so that they would come to trust in Jesus Christ and become part of that family. Then we will be united together with them in the family of God. Now, as part of our study examining the essentials of the faith, we're first examining that adage, unity and essentials 
liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. I can't just state these are the essentials of the faith that we must be united in unless I first determine that Scripture shows that we are to be united in essentials. We are to give liberty in non-essentials, and we are to show love in all things. I didn't just want to assume that statement is true or biblical, so I dedicated the first message last week to looking at unity in essentials. And we saw that it is a biblical mandate. All those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life are united in Christ, so are united with one another. Ephesians chapter 4 clearly commands us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is unity in Christ, and we are to use every effort to maintain it. This morning, we're going to take the next step, and that is look at that second part of the adage, liberty in non-essentials. Is that true? Are we free to disagree over non-essentials or secondary truths? Is there even such a thing as a secondary truth? There are some, I would say, rather extreme individuals who actually teach that all truth is primary and every disagreement is worth fighting about and ultimately dividing over if agreement cannot be reached. And they come to the stance that you either agree with them on everything or you are going to hell. Other equally extreme individuals on the opposite side argue, in effect, that truth isn't primary at all. Relationships are, and therefore no proposition or point of truth is ever worth arguing about, at least not with another professing Christian. That position is particularly popular in this relativistic post-truth culture we find ourselves. That's where you hear the expression, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth. It's all relative. But truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Truth relates to reality. There cannot be multiple realities. There can be multiple perspectives on reality. And we may not truly grasp reality, but that doesn't make it plural. It is still singular. Truth is not plural. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is just truth, lies, and opinions. So given that, is there truth that is primary and secondary for the genuine born-again child of God? I believe that there is, and I believe that the Bible declares that to be the case. And we're going to see that this morning from at least two different passages, the first one being 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read from verse 1 to the end of verse 6. Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And we're going to pause there. We're not going to look at this passage extensively, but I want you to focus in on a few things, and that is that there is central, there is essential truth, there is necessary truth, there is non-negotiable truth which is presented in this passage. Now, Paul here in this passage in chapter 15, it's actually a little bit of a strange passage because Paul has just spent the last three chapters speaking about spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, you have the introduction to those spiritual gifts. 
Chapter 13, you have the centrality and the importance of love. And then in chapter 14, sorry, that was 12, 13, and then 14, you have the parameters for some of those spiritual gifts. From there, he jumps into chapter 15, and he starts it with an incredible transition. Just finished speaking about spiritual gifts, and then he goes and literally flips the page. I declare to you the gospel. In case they got distracted with secondary things, such as gifts of the Spirit, he wants to direct them back to that which is central. And what is central? The gospel. It is the gospel which he preached and in which they stand, not spiritual gifts that they stand in. It is the gospel, it says in verse 2, by which you are saved. That is essential. That is of greatest relevance. Gifts are important, but not essential in salvation. Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, I declare to you, first of all, that which I also received. That's an interesting statement, we think, or at least I am prone to think, and maybe you think this as well. When you read that, you think he's speaking chronologically. This is the first thing I received. And after I'm finished telling you about the first thing I received, I'll tell you about the second thing I received, except for he never goes on to tell you about a second thing. That's not what he is saying here. Paul is saying, not chronologically speaking, but he's saying this is the most preeminent thing that I have received. Paul is saying this is of most importance. The NIV actually expresses it in a much better way. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. This is important. This is vital. This is a primary truth. What is it? The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is non-negotiable. We need to see the relevance, the centrality of the gospel. This is it, and it is preeminent in the mind of Paul, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. This is central because it is in this truth that we are saved. It is this truth in which we stand. It is that truth of the gospel that Paul preached and that we must preach. Are there other things that should be preached? Absolutely. Paul preached a lot of other things. But there are not other things by which you are saved. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is central. The gifts are important. He has just spent three chapters talking about that. But after talking about that, he comes back and says, Listen, do not sacrifice essential for what is non-essential. Do not sacrifice what is central for what is not central. As important as what that thing might be that's not central. Bring it back to this vital truth. So there are primary and secondary things, according to the Apostle Paul. We must be in agreement around and in unity around those essential things. And in those things that are non-essential, we can agree or disagree because they don't pertain directly to salvation. Salvation, our union with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, is what has united us with one another. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Christ himself seems to indicate that there are primary and secondary things as well. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 to 24, you can flip there if you like or not. Jesus is in the middle of rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. Eight times in that chapter, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Christ says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, 
but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Christ was not being politically correct here, or even very sensitive, we would say. Well, in verse 23 and 24 of that, Christ says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The scribes and Pharisees were tithing, that is giving 10% of the spices they used. That's being fairly specific. In a fairly small area, they would literally be measuring them out to make sure that a tenth of it was dedicated to the Lord. But they were neglecting the more important thing. Christ calls them the weightier things. They were incredibly, almost ludicrously, measuring out their spices, but were neglecting justice and mercy and faith. Now, Christ does not tell them to stop measuring out their spices. He doesn't tell them to ignore the small things. But not using it as an excuse to not do what is primary. Get back to what is primary. And look at the way he he tells it to them, the way he describes it. He accuses them of straining out a gnat, a little bug, while swallowing a camel. They were drinking their tea and straining out some irrelevant imperfection through their teeth, in a sense, but were swallowing a camel whole. That is how ridiculous it is to make these secondary things into essentials or to ignore essentials over secondary things. It's actually ludicrous. Regardless of the power of the picture, we understand that even Christ regarded some things as primary, some things as weighty or weightier than other things. These other things are non-essentials, and in those things, we are to give liberty. That is, we are to allow freedom to differ or even disagree over other things. We have liberty, freedom in non-essentials. In regards to essentials and non-essentials, this is a statement from our denomination, and I firmly agree with it. It says, we proclaim passionately the gospel of Jesus Christ. We uncompromisingly defend the essentials. We accept that Scripture teaches many other things of importance, and substance beyond the unifying essentials. However, we are persuaded that these other matters must not displace our unity based on essentials. We will be careful that our studious attention to these matters, albeit worthy, not distract us from our high calling to make his mission our mission. We won't allow secondary things to distract us from the primary things. It goes on a little further. We will express our well-considered views and will plead for a particular understanding, but not impugn the spirituality, character, or intelligence of those who differ. We will speak of our fellows with respect and avoid the tendency to demonize others who hold differing views. When others are speaking, we will accord them a courteous hearing, although we may hold differing views. I think that's good. That's a good way to look at things especially the part about not impugning the spirituality, character, or intelligence of those who differ on secondary issues. We're prone to do that. You believe that? (laughs) Are you nuts? What, What is that doing? It's impugning their character. It is discrediting them. It is cutting them down to size and essentially over something that is 
non-essential. So what are some doctrines that are non-essential, particularly ones that we are prone to try to make essential? Well, here are some obvious ones that prayerfully you don't struggle with. Certain things you can't do. Historically, the church has had a lot of things you can't do that may not have been absolutely true or may not have been relevant or primary at least. You can't drink alcohol. You can't dance. You can't smoke. You can't use playing cards. You can't go to theater. You can't work on Sunday. You can't be a liberal, whatever the case might be. <laughs> or what about things you must do? You must wear dress pants and a dress shirt in church for men or a dress that comes down below your knees or your ankles depending on which church you're going to for women. You must be in church every Sunday. You must give 10% of your income before taxes. You must be baptized. You must serve in the church. On and on and on they go. And there are certainly directives about these things within the word of God. At least principles that direct our conduct in relation to them. But none of those is an issue of salvation. It isn't an issue of salvation. By that I mean you cannot and you must not say you did not or you did such a thing, therefore you are or you aren't saved in regards to non-essentials. These are secondary issues. We must reason through these issues. We are encouraged to direct each other and to encourage each other in truth, but we must not make this an issue of salvation. And thus, we must not make these into an issue of fellowship or unity in the body of Christ. At some place and time in church history, every one of those things has been used to to determine a person's position either in Christ or outside of Christ. And that should not be. They are non-essential issues. Now, those are relatively light or frivolous ones. Some of them, anyways. What about heavier doctrinal issues which are still not essentials. And I'm probably going to ruffle somebody's feather in saying some of these because perhaps one of these may be something that you hold with incredible importance. I want you to know that I do have a stance on each of these items, but that doesn't mean that where my view differs from others on them, I have the right to declare that they are outside of Jesus Christ because of that difference. I will try to convince and correct in each of those areas, but I will not impugn, I will not discredit or attack his or her standing in Christ, their salvation, because of these issues, even if they are important issues. If it is not essential to salvation, then we can still, have, we can still give liberty to others in these areas, though we disagree. Whether someone believes in eternal security or that you can lose your salvation— whether God sovereignly elects people to heaven or it is free act of our will, whether you believe in a literal, physical, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth or it is spiritual, whether the rapture will happen before, during, or after the great tribulation, whether the mode of baptism is sprinkling or immersion, whether the days of creation were six literal 24-hour days or not, whether speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift for today or not, whether women should be in ministry, which is a real sensitive one, or not. These are not primary doctrines of salvation. And when it says again, I have a stand on every single one of them, and if you want to discuss it another time, I'm more than willing to. And our church takes a stand on the majority of them. But it is not something with which we can say, oh, you, you believe that, you're not saved. You practice that, you're not saved. We cannot impugn other people's spirituality, not, not their spirituality or maturity. Maybe that's a question. Absolutely, we can examine some in, in regards to spiritual maturity, but not their standing in Jesus Christ based on those 
secondary truths. The reality is that these doctrines, though of great importance, are not a matter of heaven and hell. And regardless of how vital I may think they are, or even how clear I believe the Word of God may be on any given topic, if the Word of God does not make them a matter of heaven or hell, I will resist the temptation to make them that myself. I will give liberty in non-essentials. That doesn't mean, by the way, that I would become a member of a church who on all of these non-essentials holds a view contrary to myself and what I believe the Word of God says. But I wouldn't say that the person or group is saved or not saved based on any given one of those doctrines. Remember, we have freedom in these non-essentials. We are to give liberty, to demonstrate liberty or freedom in these non-essentials, and we also have that. If you're not real charismatic, I wouldn't recommend you go to a hyper-charismatic church. If you don't believe that women should be in ministry, I don't recommend that you go to a church that has a female pastor. These are simple, common-sense things, right? We have an understanding of that. Anyways, I hope you get the essence of what I'm saying here. And if you have any questions, once again, on exactly where I stand on any one of these issues, feel free to discuss it with me outside of this setting. Or if you believe that I am putting an essential into a non-essential category, I'm more than willing to sit and discuss that with you as well. Some of these issues, sincere, godly, dedicated believers have struggled with and wrestled with for years. And some of them we will probably debate and discuss from now until Jesus Christ comes to take us home. But on these issues, it does not mean that one person is saved and another damned because they have a differing view. Turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We're going to look at how conflict was handled over a non-essential truth in the New Testament church. This is how Paul handled a divisive, non-essential issue. I'm not going to read through, I would encourage you, read through Romans chapter 14 all the way to halfway through Romans chapter 15 because it is speaking about our liberty in Jesus Christ and how to handle these issues. Romans chapter 14 verse 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Uh, And I'm going to pause as we read through a few times here anyways. A weak Christian is one who has unfounded, we would say, principles over matters of secondary importance. That's, according to this passage, is what someone who is weak in the faith is. In this context here, we have probably a converted Jew who still had issues or scruples about eating non-kosher food and working on Saturday, the Sabbath for them. So this was actually a fairly major issue. This is not what color your carpets are as far as dividing a church or what kind of style of music you have. This was a major doctrinal issue that there was division in the church over or potential division, and yet it was not a central truth. And so Paul addresses it. Remember, the Jews had been practicing this for thousands of years, eating kosher. They saw it as an expression of what was pleasing to God. It's not some little idiosyncrasy. These weak Christians, staunchly adhering to a meaningless practice, in our eyes, it says should be received into the local fellowship, but not with the idea of engaging them in disputes about their extreme scruples. Christians can be happy in fellowship while not agreeing on non-essentials. We can have good fellowship, even though we disagree on non-essentials. Romans chapter 14 verse 2. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats or eats only vegetables. Verse 3. Let not him who eats 
despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. We understand that the believer walking in Christian liberty has faith based on the teachings of the New Testament that all food is clean. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 to 5 says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. A believer with a weak conscience may have qualms about eating pork or any other meat for that matter. So we must bear with one another. The mature Christian must not despise the one who has these, what we would consider to be hang-ups about this. Neither should the weak brother judge as a sinner someone who enjoys ham, shrimp, or lobster. God has received him into the family of God. He is a member in good standing. Verse 4, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. That's incredible. Each believer is a servant to the Lord, and we have no right to sit in judgment in these secondary, these non-essential issues as if we were the master. It is before his own master that each one stands approved or disapproved. We may look down at other believers thinking that they're really making a mess of things because of this view on this matter. But such an attitude is wrong. God will sustain those on both sides of the question. His power to do so is adequate. God is able to make him stand. Then we get on to issues of Sabbaths and feasts and festivals. And this may seem like a long way off for us, but even here it comes down to simple things that we celebrate. Do we have freedom to celebrate them or not celebrate them? Christmas. Some believers, I would say godly dedicated members of the body of Christ, have real issue with anyone celebrating Christmas. Well, this passage says, you're free to, you're free not to. This is non-essential. But you can't judge someone because they do, and you shouldn't judge someone because they don't. We are to give them liberty in these areas. One person esteems one day, verse 5, above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, To the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. These Jewish Christians looked at the Sabbath as a day of obligation. They had a conscience about doing any work on Saturday. In that sense, they esteemed one day above another. Other believers, they didn't share that same standard. They looked at every day alike. They did not look upon six days as secular and one as sacred. To them, all days were sacred. Whatever view one holds on the subject, the principle is this. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Remember that that only applies to non-essential doctrines. Those things which are essential, there is no room for you to say, well, if it's right for me, it's right for me, even if it's wrong for you. That is not what it's meaning when it says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. And we can continue to look through this, and I can continue to break it down, but Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, whatever we do, we are the Lord's. It's all about the attitude we have when we do whatever it is in these secondary issues. Is it as to the Lord with the intent of pleasing him and glorifying him or is it from selfishness? Verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. 
But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, and notice this. Resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in a brother's way. That is the standard. In non-essential things, don't cause your brother or sister in Christ to fall. Consider other believers before yourself. And you can keep going. I'll just do verse 19 as the last one. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The things that edify one another. The church of Jesus Christ today, that is, all those who are part of the body of Christ, declared righteous in God's grace through the shed blood of Christ, are united in Jesus Christ. Enjoy that unity. Celebrate that unity. Share that unity in that sense. Don't let secondary issues destroy it. We spend, this is church North America anyways, we spend way too much energy fighting over inconsequential matters. We get caught up in our differences and we tend to thump each other over the head with our differences rather than build each other. We are to be building one another up in the faith. We are to be strengthening one another. We are to be edifying one another. We should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we should, in that unity, be sharing the essentials, the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are yet outside of the faith. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is incredible. It really is indescribable. If you find yourself picking apart other believers, when I find myself picking apart other believers, and I'm very prone to do that, I need to go back to God's grace demonstrated to me and marvel at it. And then take that grace, that undeserved, unmerited grace that has been poured out on this sinner and give it to others who are walking the same journey of faith as I am. Even if I can't understand why they would hold such strange or silly doctrines. Who knows, maybe we'll discover in conversation with them that we're the ones holding silly or strange doctrines. That we are the one who, as much as we don't want to admit it, is weak in the faith and needs other people to extend grace to us as well as we seek Jesus Christ together. We are to have unity in essentials, in the non-negotiables. That means there's going to be a dividing line between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. We are to have liberty and to give liberty in these secondary issues, in the non-essentials, and in both of those camps. We are to demonstrate love, to speak in love, to speak the truth in love. And I pray that our love would be so great, and we're going to look at that next week. But I pray that our love would be so great that even where we differ on non-essentials, it wouldn't matter. Sure, it's important, and sure, we can build each other up, but we would so love each other that we wouldn't even be tempted to impugn, to discredit the spiritual standing of somebody who differs with us. And may our love be so great that we are clearly and obviously demonstrating that love within the body of Christ, where we have unity in essentials, and to those we don't have unity with as well, those who are outside of Jesus Christ. That they wouldn't look at the church and see, man, those guys are divided over some pretty silly things, or those guys are united over some, some nutty things, but that they would simply see that they love. As we demonstrate love, as we show love that Christ has called us to love, 
may we have opportunity to share of the central truth, the pivotal truth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word brings clarity and understanding, even in areas that often we struggle with. Lord, I ask that you would grant us wisdom in these areas of essentials, non-essentials, and grant us a heart of love. It is so hard to love in every situation, and we recognize that it must be because of your miraculous hand that we are able to. And so continue to pour out your spirit upon us and enable to love as you have loved us. Grant us that ability to give liberty, not to ignore or leave behind other believers who we feel may be walking in error in a specific situation, but to give liberty and to entrust them into your hands, knowing that you are able to keep them. And help us to passionately be united around the gospel and passionately proclaim those things which are absolute, unchanging, timeless truths. Help us to proclaim Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.